0: This is Brian O'Leary, and I've got your six. Just as a quick bit of miscellany before I begin, the song that I used for today's intro is entitled Trumpet Voluntary. It was composed by an English chap named Jeremiah Clark, and was the music that the BBC played at the beginning of each of its broadcasts to occupied Europe during World War II. The show would begin with the host, NF Newsom saying, This is London calling, followed by Trumpet Voluntary. After the end of the war, listeners in the Nazi-occupied countries testified to the role that the BBC played in providing accurate information and keeping up morale on the continent. About 3000 years ago, the city we know today as Jerusalem was called Jebus and was under the control of a Canaanite or Canaanite tribe referred to in the Bible as the Jebusites. Having ruled Judah for about 7 years, King David had succeeded in consolidating his power by subduing the populations of the surrounding regions and convincing them to anoint him as king of all of Israel. It was at about this time that David set his sights on the city of Jebus as the capital of his kingdom. He was drawn to it by its location in neutral territory, its defensibility atop the southern slope of Mount Moriah, the continuous water supply to the city, and its enviable location along transportation routes that would allow for increased trade and commerce, as well as serve as avenues for the rapid deployment of his military against the Philistines and Ammonites. All of that was swell, only now David had to figure out a way to conquer the city and wrest it from the control of the Jebusites. And remember, all of those attributes that made the city so desirable to David would also make the city exceedingly difficult for him to take. In fact, once they learned of his intentions, the Jebusites began to taunt David and his army, boasting that they could man the walls of the city with their blind and crippled, and the Israelites still wouldn't be able to take it. Massive walls and fortifications surrounded the Jebusite stronghold, and in order to execute a frontal attack, David's men would have to conduct their assault while going uphill. Now David realized that such a tactic would be a total suicide mission, so he came up with another idea. You see, beneath a portion of the city's defense, a seven-story, four-thousand-year-old wall was Gihon Spring, the source of the city's water supply. David concluded that if he was going to be able to take the city, the best way to do it would be to strike the water channel below. There was one minor problem, however. The only access to the spring was from inside the city. So David addressed his men saying, who's ever able to penetrate the water channel and conquer the city... Will become my chief of staff. Upon hearing the king's proposition, a fellow by the name of Joab turned to the dude next to him and said, Hold my beer. He then approached David and said, Your Highness, I'm your guy. Let's do this. Joab then went on to lead a commando mission into an irrigation canal that led just beneath that seven story fortification, where water from the spring was channeled beyond the walls to irrigate fields on the city's outskirts. Somehow, Joab's squad was able to penetrate the irrigation duct and take control of Gihon Spring. From there, the rest of the city fell rather quickly. So 3,000 years ago, the most significant city in the history of the world was conquered by way of subterranean urban warfare, and Jebus would soon become the city of David. Now, while David's conquest of his future capital city is a pretty cool story, Jebus was no Gaza. While it may have featured massive defensive fortifications, when the Israelites infiltrated, they weren't being shot at with AK-47s or RPGs. Nor did they have to worry about booby traps or suicide bombers, and they didn't need to account for civilians becoming collateral damage of mortar and rocket fire. David's progeny, however, need to account for all of that and more. While I don't know too much about the Jebusite ethos, I'm inclined to doubt that, unlike Hamas, they would have used grandparents children, or hospital patients as human shields. Additionally, David didn't have to factor the safety and welfare of 241 friendly hostages into his military plan. The defensive advantage. Military theorists have long agreed that defense is the strongest form of war, and the reason why is quite simple. On any terrain, the side on defense generally has the natural upper hand. They've likely had time to prepare positions, and structures behind which they can conceal themselves from view and protect themselves from incoming fire. The attacking force, on the other hand, if it wants to achieve its objective of overtaking the enemy position, must expose itself to observation as well as enemy fire. This advantage is magnified on urban terrain where pre-existing Mad Main structures serve as natural cover, requiring far less preparation or improvement. Even without its massive tunnel network, nicknamed the Gaza Metro, Hamas enjoys a natural advantage simply by by being on defense, especially in an urban environment. Of course, the tunnels are a bonus. In January 1966, U.S. and Australian forces executed Operation CRIMP, which at the time was the largest allied military action of the Vietnam War. The mission's objective was to capture a key Viet Cong headquarters that was believed to be underground in the vicinity of Ku Chi, just 25 miles north of Saigon. As the Australians and Americans moved through the area, they encountered foxholes, trenches, and mines, but no enemy personnel. However, enemy snipers holed up in tunnels were able to continually inflict casualties on the unsuspecting intruders. After the third day on the ground, the Aussies and the Yanks finally realized that the VC must be underground. Over the following four days, the Allied troops discovered over 11 miles of communications tunnels and underground shelters containing stores of ammunition and supplies. Later analysis would determine that the tunnel network spanned nearly 250 miles. Australian engineer units were able to destroy much of the known tunnel system, but when the American forces launched another offensive in Ku Chi a year later, they found that the tunnels had been restored. The Viet Cong would later go on to use them as a base during the 1968 Tet Offensive. Philippine security forces entered the city of Marawi in May 2017 to capture Isnalan Hapalan, the commander of the ISIS-linked Abu Sayyaf group. Military commanders anticipated a relatively brief operation, but were quickly surprised by the enemy's ability to hold out so long. Months before the attack, the Islamist militants had dug holes through concrete floors and buildings, some as much as 10 inches thick. They stored ammunition, food, and explosives in the underground chambers, which also connected conveniently to the city's sewer system. The tunnels enabled the militants to maneuver offensively against Philippine units, move to alternate positions when in danger of being overrun, and shelter themselves from near daily aerial bombardments, which were aided by state-of-the-art American radar. The region's military commander estimated that, at one point, the militants controlled more than 4,000 buildings. The operation that the Philippine brass originally foresaw as brief instead dragged on for over five months. During the Battle of Stalingrad in September 1942, Russian Sergeant Yakov Pavlov's platoon took up a defensive position in a four-story apartment building that overlooked a large downtown square and provided the Soviet troops with clear lines of sight from three sides. Pavlov's soldiers encircled the building with concertina wire as well as anti-tank and anti-personnel mines and placed machine gun positions on the structure's corners. When they detected German indirect fire, they would move to lower floors where they were better protected from the bombardment. When German panzers approached, the Russians would rotate to higher floors in order to fire anti-tank missiles at the vulnerably thin tank roofs. Pavlov's platoon of about 40 men held the building for 58 days in spite of continuous mechanized and combined arms attacks by the Germans. During the First Battle of Grozny in early 1995, Chechen separatists conducted highly effective anti-armor ambushes against their Russian adversaries. Employing small teams armed only with AK-47s and RPGs, the Chechens engaged Russian armored and mechanized convoys from basements or upper floors of buildings where the Russians couldn't effectively return fire. First hitting the tracks of the lead and trail vehicles to prevent withdrawal, the ambush teams would then strike the vulnerable points of the Russian armored vehicles and tanks and then move along the convoys' flanks to continue their assault. In just the first 3 days of January, the Russian 131st motorized brigade lost 102 of its 120 armored vehicles and 20 of its 26 T-80 tanks. The 3rd battalion of the Russian 6th tank regiment brought 31 tanks to the fight. By the end of the battle, only one of them remained fully operational. On March 31st, 2004, Iraqi insurgents ambushed an American supply convoy on the outskirts of Fallujah, killing four private contractors with the Blackwater Company. Hours later, images of their bodies hanging from a bridge were broadcast around the world. The following day, CENTCOM spokesman Army Brigadier General Mark Kimmett promised a, quote, overwhelming response, declaring, quote, we will pacify that city. Marine leaders on the ground saw things a bit differently. Lieutenant General James Conway, the commander of the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force, and the 1st Marine Division's commander, Major General James Mattis, recognized the event as a ploy by the insurgents to provoke a large-scale response. Brigadier General John Kelly, the assistant commander of the 1st Marine Division, wrote in his unit's daily report on April 1st, quote, We must avoid the temptation to strike out in retribution. Nonetheless, with the help of media attention and public pressure, the order soon came down from quite high on the chain of command for the Marines to seize the city within 72 hours. By April 4th, a coalition of about 2,000, including 1,300 Marines, had encircled the city, supported by constant airstrikes. By the following morning, the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force believed it was poised to take the city and root out those responsible for the contractors' deaths. However, the tactics employed by the Marines were simply not suitable for the urban terrain. As one officer told an embedded reporter, it was, Hey diddle diddle, straight up the effing middle. And so the Marines soon found themselves under fire from all sides. Over the ensuing three weeks, insurgent positions were hammered by AC-130 gunships, firing 105mm artillery rounds from above. The Marine Scout snipers in the city each averaged an incredible 31 confirmed kills during the battle. However, U.S. forces found that they were no closer to eliminating the insurgents. As CENTCOM Deputy Commander General Lance Smith would opine, it was like we kicked a hornet's nest. The U.S. military withdrew from Fallujah on May 1st, turning the operation over to the Iraqi Fallujah Brigade. By September... The Brigade had dissolved and its American-supplied weapons and equipment were turned over to Sunni insurgents. These developments, of course, forced the U.S. to return to the city that November. The second battle proved successful, with the Americans retaking Fallujah. However, the engagement proved to be the deadliest involving U.S. Marines since Vietnam, claiming the lives of 82 Americans. The Luxury of Prep Time As it awaits the impending assault... The defensive force has really nothing to do but prepare and continually improve its positions. This can include occupying the most advantageous terrain, establishing strong points, installing obstacles, laying sandbags and barbed wire, and placing mines and other anti-personnel devices. IDF troops operating in Gaza have already reported numerous instances of finding booby traps in tunnel entrances, schools, and nurseries. Back in October, they found a child's backpack loaded with 15 pounds of explosive material. Last week, they discovered a booby-trapped vehicle at Al-Shifa Hospital. Blunting the technological advantage. While the complexity of urban terrain doesn't entirely negate technological advantages, it makes many of them less effective, particularly intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance systems, aerial assets, and long-range weapon systems. Like most modern militaries, the Israelis have invested heavily in satellites, aerial reconnaissance platforms, long-range artillery, and precision-guided munitions. Unfortunately, even some pretty primitive techniques can mitigate many of the advantages those assets are intended to provide. For example, ISIS fighters in Syria and Iraq understood the threat posed by advanced ISR systems, even deep within cities. They countered those technologies by simply hanging sheets and plastic boards between and over rooftops, allowing them to move freely from building to building without being detected. Multi-million-dollar satellites were stymied by common household items and trash. Another at least perceived technological advantage is in the advanced small arms that the IDF troops employ. While many reservists are still issued American-made M16s and M4 carbines, Most active duty units are armed with the TAR-21 Tavor, a second-generation indigenous assault rifle designed and built by Israel Weapon Industries. It's a really sexy-looking weapon that uses the bullpup design, making it more compact and easier to wield. It also reduces the visual signature, so it's perfect for a close-quarters fight. The only drawback is that all of those rifles I just mentioned fire the NATO 5.56 round, which is ballistically much lighter than the 7.62 ammo fired by Hamas's AK-47s. Don't get me wrong, there are advantages to both, but a 7.62 round will go through a concrete wall a hell of a lot easier than the 5.56 alternative. The Hostages Remember, in conducting Operation Swords of Iron, the IDF doesn't have the relative convenience of merely defeating the enemy. Israeli troops must also locate and rescue 241 hostages in the process. It would be nice if they had any idea where they're being held, but that's simply not the case. Instead, they'll have to search for them methodically and painstakingly, scouring Gaza from stem to stern, street by street, house by house, and tunnel by tunnel. In doing so, they will repeatedly expose themselves to the threat of ambushes and booby traps. They'll also be forced to keep their fingers just a little bit farther from their triggers. Options and non-options Given the myriad disadvantages the assaulting force faces, particularly on urban terrain, the IDF would likely have preferred to employ another means of defeating Hamas, just as King David opted against a frontal attack. Soon after initiating the ground operation, the IDF had Gaza City surrounded and could have conducted a siege of the Hamas stronghold. Such a tactic would have spared the lives of the 66 Israeli soldiers who have died so far in the fighting. Unfortunately for the IDF, the international community, understandably, didn't much approve of the idea of starving the entire civilian population of Gaza along with the Hamas fighters. Also, considering the fact that the IDF has determined that Hamas has military positions throughout the territory, one could argue that Israel would be within its rights, per the laws of war, to simply carpet bomb the place. Now to be clear, I'm not advocating that course of action, I'm just saying. Still, let's not forget whose idea it was for Hamas to concentrate its resources and manpower in a city so densely populated with civilians. Likewise, it was Hamas who chose to construct tunnels and command centers beneath civilian hubs, including hospitals, schools, and refugee camps. A few weeks ago, the IDF discovered a tunnel under a children's amusement park. So anyway, with those strategically more expedient options off the table, a ground offensive was the IDF's only choice. One silver lining is that they've been preparing for this contingency for quite a while. Throughout the Second Intifada from 2000 to 2005, the IDF engaged Palestinian militants in numerous street fights across the West Bank and Gaza, convincing military leaders that its soldiers needed to be better prepared for urban combat. Accordingly, in 2005, Israel began construction of a $45 million urban warfare training center on the CLM Army Base, about 17 miles southeast of the border with Gaza. Known as Mini-Gaza... The 60-acre facility consists of about 600 structures, from 8-story buildings to schools and shacks, many of them adorned with militant posters and murals depicting fallen Palestinian militants. Since October 7th, the IDF has been pushing units through mini-Gaza at a heightened pace, hoping to equip them with the skills necessary for the fight against the Palestinian insurgents. Of course, the training will not negate the advantages Hamas enjoys simply by being on defense but will hopefully make the IDF troops better prepared for the urban fight than U.S. forces were for the first battle of Fallujah. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you soon.